Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Scroll with your weekly knock activism wrap-up. Today we're going to be talking about ride-hailing drivers going on strike, burning oil refineries in Los Angeles, a brief memoriam on the greatest city hall scandal of 2018, and the looming release of the homelessness count. How's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going pretty well. It's been a very interesting week. Uh, I think my favorite thing that happened this week was uh, Greta Thunberg, who's the young woman who started the youth climate strike action. She's a uh, yeah. no, uh, non-neurotypical uh, young woman from, uh, I believe, Sweden, maybe Norway. I'm, I'm drawing a blank at the, mm-hmm. at the moment. But she's calling for a general strike on climate change. And if we're going to get things changed, I feel like that's a way better way to go about things than like this really stupid sex strike that's been burning up the Twitters. <laughs> so like, you know, oh, it, you know if, you're, if you're having sex with somebody with bad politics, just stop doing that and then just stop <laughs> going to work. So that seems like the better way to address yeah. the issue at this point. I mean, the first part should just happen anyway. Um, <laughs> but yes, uh, a general strike would seem like a far more appropriate way of handling this uh, versus trying to convince folks that you're somehow going to be able to deny sex to people who don't live in Georgia and can't control policy. And that's going to somehow yeah. change things it yeah. was i was completely perplexed as to what she was really trying to do there i mean the, um, the lysistrata yeah, was an interesting it, the lysistrata was like an interesting historical moment for a second because mm-hmm. like you know athenian women couldn't vote so they didn't really have agency and that doesn't apply as much today but there's a lot to be said about the gender inequality um oh, i think for sure i think next week's big political issue that we'll have to like really dive in and tear apart is you know should you be washing your legs um, which has also been tearing up the Twitters this weekend. <laughs> so, in our quest for, for Man, more Twitter and more controversy, yeah, in our quest for more and more controversy, we're we're just gonna like dive into that one, and you know how you know should you just ra- wash one half of your body? No, you know. I don't want to get bogged down in the details, so let's go ahead and hop right into the news. Uh, let's start with sure. the driver's strike that was going on this week, uh, which also coincided with uh, Uber's IPO. But let's talk about the strike, and then we'll talk about the IPO. Yeah, so basically, for anyone who somehow missed this, on May 8th, drivers across the country went on strike. Specifically in cities like Los Angeles, it was a midnight-to-midnight strike. Uh, targeting primarily the the um, you know LAX was the I, I believe LAX was the main focus. Yeah. But the strike was f- being held across the city, and you, if you got in a ride hailing, if you opened up a ride hailing app and you used one of those cars, then you were crossing a picket line. Yep. Uh, basically, this is demanding that the drivers are treated as employees, which the courts have been finding that they actually are, and you can't treat and that uh, Uber and Lyft cannot treat them as independent contractors, which is currently allowing them to be extremely exploitative in terms of their contracts, uh, or rather a like basic lack thereof. Uh, they, they slashed their pay. I think it was they, they lost, what, 20 or 30% of their, their income I believe per it was, mile. Um, well, this, this latest, uh, the latest cut that they did was uh, 27% cut in what they paid to drivers. Whew. Yeah, so, it, you yeah, know. That's, that's huge. I mean, these people are barely struggling to like make ends meet with this, this uh, like the covering the cost of actually being a driver, let alone like actually being able to live off of it. And I mean, people, the, the, the tone deafness of the folks that are on Twitter that were arguing like, Oh, you, the, you know, driving like this is, it's not supposed to be a full-time job. You're just supposed to be using it to get a little bit of extra cash. It's like, um, I mean, uh, I mean, like isn't that what the, all of the folks that were driving full time 
by basically making it a a a, a black market taxi cab is how it all started out. Well, and also, isn't that the point of having a full time job is that you're supposed to be yeah. able to cover your expenses <laughs> with those forty hours a week? Like, how many yes, side hustles do that, I need? You shouldn't need any. That's the that's the real story here. Is that you shouldn't need any uh, any side hustles to make ends meet. You should be paid a livable wage. Period. End of story. And Uber and Lyft are not doing that. So yeah. I know that they, there was another strike that had happened earlier uh, to coincide with Lyft's IPO. Uh, and that one didn't really seem to get that much traction, but this time around, everybody was paying attention. Even Bernie got in and tweeted about it, so it was good. Yeah, and it it, it was interesting too to see the Uber and Lyft IPOs go very different ways because, like, Lyft's IPO actually uh, overperformed to an extent. So they ended up they didn't issue uh-huh. as many shares because there's they're not as big a company, but they ended up raising around twenty two billion dollars uh, and came in with I believe a sale price around sixty eight bucks. Within about a week or two, uh, their share price had been cut to thirty five dollars a share because the way they structured their IPO Yikes. allowed people to cash out in a way that you can't do with a lot of IPOs. So there was a lot of short sellers mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, like kind of weird financial shenanigans. Morgan Stanley actually was accused by Lyft of designing an entire product that you could basically use to short an IPO because you're not supposed to be allowed to short an IPO, um, which, you know, we're not going to go into the, the vagaries and the nuances of, of short selling. <laughs> but basically, Lyft allowed people who were, you know, executives at the company or early investors to buy stock cheap, and then cash it out as soon as the IPO went live. And there also isn't that much demand in the stock market for Lyft stock, it turns out. Uber, on the other hand, ended up coming in. They they issued a bunch of shares, but they, they ended up coming in, at, I want to say, around $42 a share, raising a total of $8 billion. Now, Uber itself has had been valued before this at nearly $100 billion. So people were expecting the largest IPO in the history of the world, and instead what we got was the most underperforming IPO in the history of the world. And a lot of this has to do wow. with the fact that like that growth model just isn't sustainable. You know, if 90% of the people in your city are driving for Uber, who is getting in the car to be driven anywhere? <laughs> And the one, the 1%. <laughs> yeah. And it, they're also, they're also as, as both of these companies are moving to scooters and to bikes and to, uh, yeah. uh, modes of transportation that have much lower overhead and don't require as many workers. We're kind of seeing them try and shift away from like allowing drivers to have this side hustle and really just like sticking a leech onto the, the, you know, torso of the American economy and just like extracting as much value as they possibly can. So the question is going to become from here, like, is that sustainable? Are investors really going to have a stomach for this kind of like exponential growth model? Uh, Another fun thing, and uh, Curbed actually had some coverage on this, that Uber had uh, a clause in their IPO talking about their growth going going forward. And one of their big plans is to try and kill uh, public transportation across the country because Ugh. that's their biggest competitor, you know? Like, for, for my part, I'll generally take buses and trains unless it's, you know, late at night or, like, super inconvenient. And the way that Metro is trending with cuts to service and everything, that's going to uh, happen yeah. more and more. And Uber and Lyft are pushing these public-private partnerships where they're like, oh, hey, instead of calling, like, a non-medical emergency ambulance to get you to the hospital for, like, dialysis or something, why don't you call an Uber? And Uber and Lyft both have, like, hospital services um, and you can get prioritized to be like, oh, I'm trying to make a doctor's appointment. And that's really kind of scary because we don't see that in other countries where you basically have a city selling out 
their uh, their own infrastructure and being like, we don't really want to pay for people to be able to get to the hospital or go see their doctor. So instead, we're just going to have Uber and Lyft offer special rates and prioritization to get you there. And moving forward, I feel like Garcetti and a lot of the folks on the city council are really open to that because that way they can make their budget look better, you know. It looks like the city's spending less money, even though the actual cost to Angelinos is going to go up and up and up. So even though you're paying yep. more for rides now than you were five years ago, less of that money is going to the drivers. And now a lot of that money is being used to subsidize their bike and their scooter uh, brands. So I don't know how that one's going to develop exactly, but none of it seems uh, to be going in the right way. I think you know, we've seen with car sharing services, they actually increase the number of dr- of rides across uh, cities like Los Angeles. We're actually burning yeah, more gas. increase the total of miles driven. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, half the time your car is empty. You're just burning gas going from one ride to another ride. Uh, and so that also is going to lead us into our second story uh, where we've had another fire at the Phillips 66 refinery, which I bring up because if we're going to be using more gas to be driving are empty Ubers across the city, uh, that gas has got to come from somewhere. (laughs) And Los Angeles and the Southland has some of the biggest refineries in the nation. So uh, this is, I I believe, the second fire in two months at this Phillips refinery up in Carson, right? Yeah, so in in the the refinery down in Carson caught fire on... Thursday, May 2nd, and it was the second time in as many months, uh, just just barely, but still. Uh, and it's actually uh, crazy. It was the same place and the same cause as the last one. So they clearly didn't fix the issue last uh, time around. So our uh, regulators are crude are, oil. Our, our regulators yeah. are clearly doing their job. Like they, they clearly understand oh, how to stop this stuff from happening. Yeah, no. So it was the yes, it was the crude oil pumping section of the refinery, and it took the firefighters about three hours to get it under control. Last time, it took them three hours to put it out. Uh, it was apparently more more fire this time around. Well, the, um, and the of last course, fire, nearby residents. The mm-hmm. last fire also happened at the same time as a massive fire was happening in Houston at a refinery that they literally couldn't get oh, under control yeah. for like seventy two hours. Like some of the pictures from Houston were just apocalyptic of this. Those were toxic yes, cloud just covering the sky so at least we didn't that see was conditions. a chemical plant wasn't it it was but it also was a chemical plant that uh it dealt with the refining industry so okay. it was yeah that yeah. doesn't surprise me but they it was like we didn't see anything that apocalyptic um but if you live in torrance or you live in carson or you live in wilmington you're pretty used to these air quality alerts um and it's i feel like it's oh, only a matter sure. of time until something goes very wrong on those yeah, so living in the proximity of the refineries and those oil wells is, is actually genuinely just a daily fact of life for entirely too many of our neighbors. Uh, Stand LA, the Standing Together Against Neighborhood Drilling Los Angeles, has been doing really some pretty great work in highlighting the gross inequities that come along with this uh, total environmental injustice uh, that we see all over the place. Just like you said, like the folks who live near these refineries are used to their air just being absolute garbage. And that's that's just completely not fair. And we have laws that are supposed to protect that. And it's these companies can somehow just get around the the claims. uh, When I was at City Hall and there was a uh, that that um, guerrilla, you know, protest that was being put on by Stand L.A., those folks that came in that were from the opposite side and were clearly paid to be there uh, or at least just lacked all enthusiasm for it. Uh, their whole argument was like, no, this is actually the most refi- the most regulated industry uh, or the most regulated refining industry in the in the country, and it's just like, okay, cool. Still, 
it's a refining industry and it's going to pollute more than you're saying it is because that's what always ends up happening. Well, and it's also, um, um, so yeah, the, well, it, it's also like these refineries aren't refining oil that's being used here in LA. It's not like the, the, the refined oil comes out and goes into the gas pumps around Los Angeles. It gets shipped around the world because it's actually more profitable for them to drill oil in LA, refine that oil in LA, and then ship it to other parts of the world, and then import the oil that we're actually using and burning in our cars. And so you not only have this incredibly that's toxic crazy. industry happening there, but then those super tankers that are transporting the liquid natural gas and the heavy crude and the refined crude across the planet are basically responsible for the vast majority of like sulfur dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions that we're seeing. So And particulate emissions, I think, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, they, these are huge, dirty diesel engines that will burn, you know, yeah. the heaviest, dirtiest oil because you can't move metric upon metric tons of stuff across the ocean efficiently. You know, there's all sorts of, you're better at the math than I am, but there's all sorts of drag coefficients <laughs> and, and stuff that makes it really hard and really energy intensive to yes. move a load that big. So we have this weird global economy where, again, like, you pull oil out of a, an oil well in Wilmington, you get it refined in Carson, and then you ship it to China. At the same time, we're importing oil from Venezuela to put in our Ubers that don't have any passengers. So this all makes a lot of sense to me. That's When you put it that way, it sounds pretty bleak. Yeah. Yeah, climate strike, <laughs> climate strike. But yeah, so um, so let's talk a little bit more about this. This like, was the is the refinery okay after this? Is it like burned to the ground? Like maybe it's shut down? I hope. N no, um, it just impacted briefly the uh, ability of the refinery to pump crude oil. Uh, it was very localized, and it didn't damage any of the rest of the refinery, as far mm -hmm. as uh, I was able to find out. Um, and of course people are then speculating as to what kind of an impact this is going to have on gas prices, but they didn't really change much. So, uh, we still live in the state with the highest tax price, <laughs> gas prices around. And it's really one thing I keep seeing whenever people start talking about the gas prices is they have this bizarre belief that the majority of the cost of what you're paying at the pump is in taxes. And yeah. it just blows my mind. It's, it's, I think we're paying a grand total of like, uh, 70 cents or something like that a gallon in taxes depending upon and then uh, the, the sales tax of course yeah and it, it depends which which county and which city you're in because but we also have like the on the state level there's pretty high mandated taxes and like you oh, yeah. are paying for like the California environmental uh, screenings like CalScreen and stuff like that like a lot of that funding mm -hmm. comes from the gas tax and then SB1 obviously so we have roads that are actually drivable. Um, so there are some higher costs in California, but also that's revenue that we need. Like it's, it's really bad yeah. that we're relying on a regressive tax to fund this yes. infrastructure. But at the same time, like we need to get away from cars. Like we need to start oh, for sure. disincentivizing people from driving. And that's going to be a really hard transition. But instead of making that transition, the state is just making things more expensive and they don't seem to have a long-term plan to actually like get folks out of their car um, and that, you know, we're, we're not going to get into the, the whole high speed rail thing uh, where it's taking us, you know, 20 years to lay a few miles of track up in the Central Valley versus China that's laying hundreds of miles in a year. Uh, but it, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're just kind of seeing this failure of leadership keep backing up and backing up. And it's impacting the same communities that has been impacting for a long while. You know, again, we've, we've mentioned before, like, Venice that used to have oil derricks right on the beach back in like the 1910s and 1920s. And now NIMBYs in Venice are like, keep Venice the way it was. And it's like, we'll put those oil derricks back in your backyard. You can have all the Venice you want. 
No, no oil derricks anywhere in California. Let's stop drilling this stuff out of the ground. Come on, people. Anyway, so it's the 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 whole situation with the the fires and the continued use of the refineries is is really just dire. And you you mentioned the the transition, and that's something that the folks over at uh, at the Sunrise Movement and other groups are really calling for the the need for a just transition, and that is so important for making sure that when people are living in so that it's fair for people who live in the frontline communities and for the workers who are going to be impacted when we do need to get away from using this oil, like the people that are getting those high paying jobs or who are working those high paying jobs at the refineries right now, they need to be able to continue to live a good life. And that needs to be not dealing with fossil fuels. So we need to make sure that they can shut down those refineries or we can force them to shut down those refineries, force them to shut down those places like the Aliso Canyon gas storage facility and still maintain, uh, you know, keep, keep workers employed and keep them well paid and shift them over to things that we like actually need, you know, like replanting forests and fixing our, our ecosystems that we've been absolutely blowing up in the pursuit of drilling that oil out in the first place. So, And it, it was two Mondays yeah. ago that uh, Garcetti released his Green New Deal plan for oh, Los man. Angeles, yeah. and it fell short in so many ways. I, I, I don't want to comb through it because there's been a lot of really good analysis, but one of the lines that I keep coming back to uh, towards the end of the report where they're like talking about what we're actually going to do, you just get amazing word salads like this. Uh, on his fourth point, quote, a resolve to demonstrate the art of the possible and lead the way Walking the walk and using the city's resources, our people and our budget to drive change, which means absolutely nothing. Like that's literally <laughs> just a meaningless scramble that, of words, and it, it it kind of keeps bringing us back to the fact that like Garcetti and the folks that are making these decisions and setting the tempo aren't really focused on what that change is going to look like or how we're going to get there. And I, I you know, Nuri Martinez came to the Road to a Green New Deal show in LA, and she gave a great speech, but it was also a little bit self-defeating because she talked about how she wants to see CD6, her district, you know, stop being the landfill for LA, stop being the dumping ground and stop having all these emissions and air quality issues. At the same time, she said it can't cost us a single job there. And it's like, it's going to cost us a lot of those jobs. Yeah, the, the, the point yeah. is we need to move beyond that and figure out a way to make up for that. And as we're seeing robotics move forward, you know, the Boston Dynamics folks are getting ready to go to market in the next year oh, or two. Man. The first thing oh, they're thinking about, <laughs> yeah, well, the first thing they're thinking about doing the with these robots or selling them to, the people they're selling them to is the oil and gas industry because it's incredibly toxic to work in oil and gas. Like, you die about 15 years earlier than most people if you work in those industries because it's, like, this stuff isn't made for human consumption. Um, and having gotten lost in Chevron's oil field uh, up towards San Luis Obispo, you know, all of the workers around there who, like, pointed out that I was riding into a toxic drill site were wearing respirators and and hard hats and everything and it's clearly we know that this isn't good for you and so rather than building like union even if we kept the oil and gas industry going as it's going we're not going to be creating more jobs for people we're just going to be creating more jobs for robots as we move forward like that's not going to to fix the crisis we're having in the jobs market at this point or keeping good union jobs and i know i i don't think a oil and gas executive who's and perfectly fine poisoning the planet is certainly going to be like, oh, well, we want to keep these high-paying union jobs and not get robots. Like, the robots can't unionize. They would much rather no, buy a robot can't. 
yeah, much rather buy a robot that requires some maintenance and lasts for 50 years than a human being who's going to need things like paternity leave and a pension and health care. So, you know, if we're not democratizing the robots, the robots can work on 24 hours a day. Yeah. Exactly. And if we're not democratizing the robots on every level, this is, you know, our keeping ourselves tied to the oil and gas industry is becoming even more destructive uh, for, you know, not just our environment, but for our society. So we'll be keeping you all updated on this. And I guarantee in the next six months to a year, we'll have another refinery fire to talk about. Uh, Torrance flares every couple of weeks. Like this stuff is not going oh, away yeah. anytime soon. Uh, so we'll be coming back to touch on this and also dragging Garcetti for his. Uh, mealy-mouthed plans about uh, our, quote, Green New Deal and L.A.'s development. But let's go ahead and talk about another mealy-mouthed uh, politician on our city council. <laughs> uh, it's I, I remember Jose Huizar. Uh, we talked about it a lot. There was a big FBI raid at his house uh, and his office in City Hall. Uh, and yet he's still not indicted or anything. So what the hell is going on with Jose? Yeah, well, so it's been, as you said, it, that, that raid happened uh, just about almost exactly six months ago. It was the day after the 2018 midterm elections. Uh, while his wife was still going strong in her campaign to replace him uh, when he turns out in 2020, uh, when the FBI did show up and raided his, both of his offices as well as his home, and they had the, uh, the sniffer dog that was there to search for thumb drives and other concealed electronics, um, but yeah, so on, on April 30th, the LA Times was reporting that Huizar had uh, dropped a request to seal the court motion that he had made to delay a, the lawsuit that had been brought against him by one of his former staffers, uh, Myra Alvarez. Mm-hmm. Uh, the argument was basically that Huizar was planning to, quote, rely on information pertaining to the criminal investigation that is not public, end quote, and that sealing this indictment was, uh, or sealing the, uh, the motion to delay it was somehow related to all of that, and basically that he's anticipating that he's going to be uh, coming under some serious fire from the FBI in the very near term. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they were also pl- his lawyers were also planning on pushing to delay the suit that was brought by Pauline Medina, another one of his former aides, who alleged that she faced retaliation over the same uh, com- over complaints over the same extramarital affair with yet another staffer that was mentioned in the Alvarez suit. So mm-hmm. uh, no no real news, so to speak, about Huizar, other than that like technical things are shifting around. And uh, just a friendly reminder that that did happen six months ago, and we're still waiting to see what happens. But as, as we've seen with like, uh, all of the the fun in the uh, in in MSNBC and CNN coverage, the FBI does take their sweet time when they're trying to to do an investigation, and uh, at least with this one, it looks like they'll be able to uh, bring the judge bring any kind of charges that they come up with uh, without having to worry about whether or not they can actually prosecute uh, because Weezer doesn't get to control the judiciary, so yeah. that's fun. Well, and it or also rather it, the uh, Department of Justice. Well, and it also it ties into a lot of stuff that we've been seeing, like with uh, current price uh, being implicated in some yes. pay to play. Uh, though a lot of this isn't rising to the level of like criminality, it definitely seems unethical and like at first blanche being like, yeah, that that seems like it should be a crime. And you kind of look at uh, um, what Marquise Harris Dawson has been doing in South LA, especially around the fig and the fact that like he's able to invest in a development that is displacing people in his own district. Uh, we're, we're kind of seeing this stuff stack up farther and farther and farther. And a lot of it's not rising to the level uh, where people are going to jail for it. But as we kind of hurtle towards 2020, I'm really excited to see this corruption stuff come out. Not because like I'm a big fan of corruption, but I think 
2020 is finally a chance where we can flush out half of the city council and we're beginning to see inroads being made into that you know like the cd12 special election which we'll touch on in a minute we're seeing a lot of strong progressives and people who are trying to bring things back to their community and back to their roots and it's it's going to be this constant like pull and and struggle with our electeds um you know the hillside villa tenants have been trying to get gil cedillo to pay attention to them and take meetings with them and talk with them and he's been pretty resistant to that um hopefully as more pressure mounts and we get more daylight here it will act as a disinfectant and actually give us some leverage uh, over the people who are actually deciding how to spend our money because it is budget season. Not only is the city of LA uh, negotiating out its budget, and I think they've, they finished that process last week, uh, but the, the state of California is also doing its budget um, uh, process. So Governor Newsom, or as I call him, Gavinor, uh has finally released his 2019 2019-2020 budget. So let's talk about that because when I saw this budget, I felt like if I had you know, $40 billion to spend, I probably wouldn't spend it this way. So where are we putting our money at a state level? Well, so uh, the really shocking one is that we've got a $13 billion line item that's going to the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, which with its track record has more of a focus on uh, the punitive side of things rather than the rehabilitative side of things. But, you know, that's in their name and that's what they're doing. So they get $13 billion in, in uh, the Gavinator or Gavinor Newsom or whatever nickname you want to give him. Uh, in his budget, they give, he's giving them $13 billion versus a grand whopping total of $1 billion that's going to be spent on trying to alleviate our homelessness crisis, which is a shocking uh, disparity in terms of where the focus is and where the money is being spent. I mean, a billion dollars is, uh, is still nice to have. It's, it's yeah. good to be spending that on trying to alleviate homelessness, but it's not very much money to try to tackle this incredibly large and complicated and, uh, you know, just baked into the system problem that we've got that we've been trying to deal with for decades and had really no inroads in. Um, as Delane Easton, who was running against uh, Gavner, uh, back in the 2018 primaries, she was often repeating on her, in her stump speeches and whenever she was in any of the debates or anything else, that your budget really does represent what your priorities are. And along those lines, dedicating 13 times as much money to locking folks up compared to what you're spending to try to provide shelter for unhoused Californians is a shocking revelation of where our priorities are really do lie. So that's and, super fun. And we know from LAPD's own numbers that the only demographics seeing more arrests and more incarceration year over year are people who are experiencing uh, homelessness either temporarily or, or almost permanently. Um, and it, As well are, as use of force. like Yeah, 30% of the use of force in the city of LA last year was against people who were experiencing houselessness. And it, which I, is unbelievable. Well, I, I do want to give some credit a little bit, you know, a, a very small amount to the governor's budget, because this is an increase in our spending from last year. In 2018, the state spent $619 million, and I believe that includes the extra $300 million that Jerry Brown was like, oh, we've got a budget surplus. Uh, we're going to stash most of it in like our rainy day fund 
fund, which is just another word for austerity. You know, that's just the state saying, oh, you gave us more money than we need. <laughs> and instead of allowing you to use it or access it through services, we're just going to like hold on to it and pull some interest off of it. But we're that's a, a pretty decent increase of what we spent in 2018. Still not nearly enough, um, especially because we know the homeless count is coming out soon, right? Yeah, exactly. So the Los Angeles Homelessness Services Agency, also known and often referred to as just LASA, is uh, they've got their numbers for that homelessness count that they do. They do a, a point in time count every year to track what is going on with the homeless situation in Los Angeles. And uh, those numbers are going to be due out on May 31st. So it's going to be really interesting to see what is going on here, because uh, last year they had pointed out that there was a decline in uh, the number of folks who are uh, unhoused and sleeping on the streets or sleeping in their cars. We, we do have to uh, say, though, that, that that decline comes with some big square, yes. uh, square, some big <laughs> scare quotes around it. Uh, you know, decline is, and, and there's been a lot of talk about this on like LA Podcast and other places where when they send uh, volunteers out into the city to count people who are living without permanent shelter, if you see a tent, you only count that as one person, even though there might be four people living in there. Uh, so there, there's oh, yeah. a lot of gaming of the system just to make sure that the numbers come in as low as possible. But even with that gamesmanship, these numbers are still climbing year over year. Yes. Well, they did have that brief decline uh, before, but uh, just to quickly anecdotally uh, point out what you're talking about with that tense number. Um, when I was doing some outreach just uh, a week, or I guess, uh, yeah, it was just over a week ago. Um, we went to a tent that when there was one tent that was next door that had nobody there. And then there was the next tent that we went to that had four people inside of it. And then while we were talking to those four, two more people came over and went back to that first tent. So it's the situation of like the tents don't represent what's really going on um, mm. because they're just, they're, they're shelter. They're, they're trying, it's a way of people trying to seek shelter and protect themselves. But it also provides a barrier between the folks who are trying to do the outreach or trying to do the counts uh, for, between them and actually knowing what's going on. Yeah, and, just, just uh, using that as an example, like if you were counting those tents, you would only count 30% of the people living in those two tents. And like that's a yes. drastic difference. Yeah, absolutely. So there, there have been a lot of people who have pointed out that there are, are problems with the methodology, but it does seem to be kind of like the best that Lhasa can do, but I, I, I refuse to accept that, that that's good enough. Um, and then they also had changed who was doing the statistical analysis um, behind it to actually generate those final numbers. And it, uh, I believe it's now being done through USC. And last year when they did have that decline, it was also the first year that they had switched who was crunching the numbers. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens this time around. Um, we are expecting most people, the rumor mill has it that that number is going to definitely be climbing over what 2018 showed. Uh, now the question really becomes how much? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have a feeling it's going to be pretty drastic. The, the sort of scuttlebutt coming out of city hall is that they're worried about the numbers. Uh, and it, it seems to me like they're more interested in getting the right PR spin than actually coming up with alternatives because you and I were there when the city council voted to say no to SB 50 at the same time them oh, voting yeah. no to SB 50 wasn't anybody standing up and saying, Hey, I've got a better idea. It was just, you know, yeah, four no, city council members standing up and saying, I don't like SB 50 for these weird NIMBY reasons, but I'm going to use lefty well, rhetoric for it, but not providing an yes. actual alternative. Yeah, it was the the classic uh, "we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas" approach, which is 
I mean, come on. We elected these folks to try to govern our city, and this is literally the biggest crisis that is affecting Los Angeles at the moment is the affordability of housing which to, and, and homelessness, which are two completely inextricably linked issues that are are going to need to be dealt with. And City Hall is just basically re- constantly refusing to do anything about actually solving the problem, which, I mean, SB 50 has its definite issues. Uh, and I, I'm still not a fan because until you get the tenants' rights groups uh, to get on board and say, we are satisfied that there are enough protections for tenants in this, uh, I, I refuse to accept that it is good enough. Um, one of the things that was shocking to me when I was looking at this graphic that came out on Twitter, uh, that was showing an overlay of where the, where the impacts of SB 50 are going to be in Los Angeles. It was bizarre looking at it and knowing that Koreatown is, is one of the most densely populated and also one of the poorest neighborhoods in the city that where the median income is not over $40,000. If my, uh, based on the statistics that I was looking at, that means that folks are not making that much more than like that $15 minimum wage. And the reality of the, of, the, of the situation on the ground does not match up with what they're saying in terms of where these sensitive communities that are supposed to be protected under SB 50 fall. Because if you look at the map, the overlay, for some bizarre reason, like south of Wilshire, the area between the first, the Wilshire-Vermont stop versus uh, the Normandy stop, uh, it, it just is that region is protected, but south of Wilshire. But then as soon as you get past Irolo Street, I mean, looking at the pixels, it was tough to tell exactly which street it was. But once you get past that and you go over toward the next stop, um, and I might be confusing the stop names, I apologize, I don't normally go that far out on the purple line. Um, But once you get to the last stop at Wilshire Western, that whole region between those last two stops south of Wilshire is all primed for, you know, just upzone at all. So it's bizarre and i can't there's not that much of a of a fundamental difference in terms of what is going on with who lives in those neighborhoods but one area gets protected and one area absolutely does not and that just is i i really want to see what they're how they're classifying what these uh impacted communities that get to be relieved from this pressure are going to be and then also bear in mind that they've got five years to figure it out before everything just starts to kick in and that I don't know what is going to happen in that time under this bill in its current format. So hopefully 1481 and 1482 get through the assembly and uh, make it out and then get packaged in yeah. with SB 50. And that would make me feel a whole lot more comfortable with it. But it's still not far enough. We need real rent control. We need a repeal of Costa Hawkins. And nobody is talking about the Ellis Act. Well, I, I, I think it, I think you're missing a very obvious market-based solution here, which is that you and your family, who are <laughs> earning uh, uh, earning forty grand a year, rent one of these incredibly expensive apartments, and then just you know Airbnb it six nights a week, and so you can spend oh, you know four right. or five days in your actual apartment, uh, and then the rest of the time just to pay the rent and make ends meet, you just Airbnb the thing. And I think that that's a good solution. I think people should should really embrace that more. You'll you'll just drive your Uber car all the time and Airbnb your <laughs> apartment and uh, just sort of live this like permanently transient lifestyle uh, where you're still crushed by debt and not building any equity. Uh, And, you know, quite frankly, I think that's a a lovely society. Well, but you are forgetting that the city hall did finally, after what, three years of working on it, uh, pass that those regulations that are going to start 
slowing down the growth of uh, Airbnb and hopefully start to actually shut it down in large swaths of the city um, because uh, those those rules are going to come into effect this summer. Oh, so and that, that limits you to I 180 believe- one hundred and eighty days a year is the limit on that one. Right? Yeah, but it's but more importantly, it's I believe it's got the ban on um, you can't do any Airbnb in a multifamily housing. So uh, mm-hmm. it's the single family homes that are being rented out that are are going to continue to be that way. But it's it's complicated. Nothing. Like, this is another one of those situations where it's like, come on, guys, like we've got to do more. We've got to like actually make progress on this, and it's. City Hall just drags their feet, drags their feet, drags their feet. And if we keep things going at the pace that they've been going in terms of trying to tackle these meaningful issues that are impacting tons of Angelinos, we're, we're not going to get anywhere that we need to get in the time frame that we've got left. Yeah. Because when you look at those IPCC figures, we've got a decade to really make massive progress on cutting our CO2 emissions and becoming uh, you know, a, a fully green economy. And at this pace, we're just never going to get there. Well, and it, it also... It also raises all sorts of issues um, about, you know, the wildland interface fires that we've been seeing, like the Woolsey fire and the campfire that like destroyed entire towns and burned all the way through Malibu. And as we push people farther out into less developed areas where these wildfires are more likely to occur, we're simply going to see more domestic climate refugees. We're already seeing a lot of that on the southern border. And I don't think people in the U.S. and especially the the wealthy folks that are living in L.A. and and moving to our city year over year really appreciate how much these pressures are just going to undercut whatever economic base we might have. And that's even, you know, putting aside the issues of of people dying from literal climate change. Um, And that it's, I think frustrating is a good way to put it. And that I I have to say that because it's, it's just enraging on a level, but you need to put that aside and sort of think pragmatically so it's it's going to be interesting to see SB 50 develop uh, through the the assembly and the Senate. It's also going to be interesting to see the anti rent gouging bill, the tenants' right to organize, and how much of a lever that can be to protect people and keep people in their homes now. Because as we're talking about SB 50, and you you noted this, it's going to be five years before we see an impact from that if that bill gets passed, and we just keep kicking the can farther and farther down the road. Uh, and it's. We've delayed action for so long that there aren't good alternatives uh, without like some sort of radical action. Um, and right now, everyone yeah. is very focused on market-based solutions. And I think there's got to be a real narrative shift away from market-based solutions to actual solutions. Yep. That's, so, yeah, I wholly, fully agree on that. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, but I think that leads us into uh, a couple of things I wanted to talk about at the end. Um, uh, the youth climate strike has uh, been doing a lot of good uh, actions down at L.A. City Hall. Uh, pretty much every other Friday, they're holding uh, speakers and music and having folks talk about like their experiences with climate change and what we can do to protect ourselves. They have a really big action coming up on May 24th at Pershing Square. It's going to be from 12 to 2.30. So if you get the chance, head out to Pershing Square, uh, meet the young kids who are really pushing this and making a very valid case for why we need to stop putting our own economic health over their survival. Uh, And I'm unfortunately not going to be able to be there for that one, but I am going to be doing some youth climate strike stuff here in LA, or sorry, here in Phoenix, uh, while I'm kicking down here for a little while. Uh, And then you mentioned that you'd been up in the valley uh, doing some canvassing for Lorraine Lundquist. Uh, so the, the election is going to be June 4th. Uh, I assume you guys are going to be out there, uh, or sorry, I assume y'all are going to be out there uh, the rest of the weekends knocking some doors and engaging some voters. Absolutely. There are going to be folks up there. 
uh, canvassing directly with the Lorraine Lundquist campaign itself. Um, and then Ground Game is also running uh, a canvassing operation uh, with some of our partners from uh, uh, Food and Water Action to get up there and really make sure that people are aware that this election is even happening. Um, the mailers are getting through people that I, I, I knocked on doors and I was talking to voters uh, for a good chunk of, uh, of, of Saturday. And uh, it was awesome. It's really fun to engage with folks. It's only like, you know, nerve wracking the first couple of times that you knock on the door. Uh, and then after that, you kind of get into a rhythm of it. And you're like, hey, this is fun. I'm, I'm, I'm sharing information. I'm just trying to be helpful. Uh, and most people are very receptive of it. Uh, they are, of course, being peppered with flyers because they're uh, or mailers rather. Excuse me, because there are what is it, 10, uh, 15 candidates right now that are in this race? 15. So, I think I think about five of them are actually viable, but there's a lot of hats in the ring. It's it's a lot of names. And then so all these people that are spending money on these mailers and just being like, if I send you enough things in the mail, you're going to just recognize my name when it comes to the ballot and you're going to vote for me, which does in large part work. But uh, there was one particular uh, family that I, I knocked on the door and I spoke with uh, with one of the members of the family. And after talking about it, they're like, well, we're still making up our minds. We haven't really figured out what we're going to do yet, uh, who we're going to vote for. But your endorsement really has counted a lot in this and uh, it's going to weigh into the into the decision making. And I was like, that was super uh, satisfying to hear. And uh, it was awesome. Uh, I met another voter who is a teacher and uh, has been to two of the candidate forums so far and is excited about there's another candidate forum coming up, I believe on, uh, I want to say May 29th, yeah. but I forget exactly when that is that's coming up. Um, and they've really liked how those have been going so far and they're still weighing their decisions. But uh, this is a chance to, you know, really get out there and exercise uh, your, your power in a democracy of voting because it's going to be a low turnout election everyone's expecting, which means with just like uh, probably six or eight, maybe 10,000 voters coming out and participating, they're the ones who get to decide how uh, one out of the 15 city council members is, is selected. And that is, uh, as we've mentioned over and over again, these city council folks really do have incredible amounts of authority and autonomy when it comes to decision making for what happens within their districts. And it's really important that we have folks who understand the urgency of the situations that we're in. And so it's cool getting to see people actually talking about environmental issues uh, and like shutting down the Aliso Canyon gas uh, storage facility, as well as just really pushing us toward a, a true green energy future. Uh, and uh, it was also really uh, inspiring to see that folks up in CD12, even though they're not nearly as impacted as uh, most of the other districts, I think any of the other districts yeah. in the city by homelessness, it's still one of those big issues that people have been talking about. And there's clearly like some demand coming from the voting base saying, look, we need to do something about solving these problems. And they're actually holding these candidates to account and demanding answers at these forums, which is fantastic. So, And this is, this yeah. is what, when we talk about <laughs> dual power strategies, this is really kind of the heart of it. Because it's not just about showing up and voting. Like, voting is important. Elections do matter. They, they, those decisions do have an impact. But getting out and talking to voters and just letting them know, like, hey, there are other people out here who care about issues like you do, uh, it gets a lot of people active. And a lot of the work that has to be done goes beyond the polls. Like, once the election is said and done, you then have to lobby that city council member. You then have to keep staying active. You then have to keep your neighbors talking about stuff and writing letters and making phone calls. And 
that all starts by knocking on doors and getting people engaged with like the exciting election that's happening. And then from there, making sure that they know like, hey, you've done half of the stuff. Now we have to do the other yeah. stuff. And so without groups Keep like Ground Game and Food and Water Action, yeah, and, and even the campaigns that are out there running these canvases, without that actual people power, the, the elections become kind of an exercise in futility. And that's you know one reason I'm skeptical of like large national campaigns because you're not able to connect with people as directly and like any decision that the person in the White House is making probably has less impact on your daily life than the decisions that your city council member or your county board of supervisors uh, member is making. And so this is like, if you want to get active and involved, this is a really good opportunity and it's a lot of fun. Plus like you can get in a lot of steps, you know, slap on your Fitbit, count your steps and just watch <laughs> those pounds melt away. Um, and it's, it's a lot of fun. Some of these are really nice neighborhoods. So if you do want to also kind of like do some house shopping, like this is a good way to see like, <laughs> where would I like to live if I moved up to CD12? Um, but yeah, that yeah. kind of wraps it for me this week. Uh, you got anything else you want to talk about? No, that's uh, that's all I've got for now. There's going to be, uh, I mean, we're going to have a lot of stuff to talk about next week, but let's not get into that yet. We'll, uh, We'll be back here again next week and yeah. uh, looking forward to talking to all of you. So thanks. Yeah. And uh, last point before I let everyone leave, uh, Bo Delight, the new uh, interview podcast host, is going to be premiering their first episode oh, yeah. uh, this week. Uh, they were interviewing folks from ICE out of L.A. and talking about what kind of immigrant organizing is happening in L.A. So keep your eyes on the SoundCloud and the iTunes for that one. And I'm really excited to see yeah. what Bo does and the interesting guests that they get in there. Uh, always moving forward. Uh, thank you all for listening and we'll be back here next week.